they looked at using BFR on the thighs and they squatted it was twice a week or three times a week. So they did five by five. So a bit more of a traditional strength training program on professional rugby union players. So we're getting closer to our elite athlete population or athletic population. They did five by five squats, bench press and pull-ups. And um, at 70% of their 1RM. So we're starting to get higher load lifting um, with the cuffs only on the thighs. Now, their 30-meter sprint improved greater compared to the control that did the same training without the cuffs. So around 70%, and they improved their bench press, which shows that there's some sort of systemic response. And that was also highlighted with improvements in testosterone concentration as well. That was Dr. Chris Caviglio, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast. Starting with the Phoenix Formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout. And I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilajit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us. If a training tool costs thousands of dollars, it's hard for a lot of individuals to rationalize Uh, getting that piece of equipment as a regular part of their training. The nice thing about blood flow restriction training is that it is relatively inexpensive. This is a training method with solid benefits without having uh, some of the big price restrictions that other training technologies might bring forth. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about this today. Blood flow restriction training has been a training tool that I've had or or had on my radar for some time. Uh, Many years ago, I heard about these fast twitch muscle increases that were being uh, found with these studies. And, but granted, at the time, I believe the initial studies with BFR were older or elderly populations or perhaps even untrained individuals. I'm not sure about that. But there wasn't a lot coming out at the time that I was aware of, of high-level athletes using this with higher training loads. But now there are. Uh, you may have heard in the teaser, uh, Chris Caviglio, our guest, talking about just that, how BFR can allow lighter training loads to be used but achieve great results. And in my journey as a coach, I've seen athletes such as a high-level Olympic swimmer who had achieved many gold medals, who loved using blood flow restriction training. I've seen or heard results from Nikolai Morris when she was on the show of having a 100-meter freestyle swimmer drop 1.5 seconds on his time, which is outstanding in the course of utilizing blood flow restriction training. I know several of my coaching colleagues use the method and enjoy it. And I also have, in the last few months, used some upper body cuffs myself and have really enjoyed using them. So to approach this topic of blood flow restriction training, I can't think of a better guest than Dr. Chris Gaviglio. Chris is currently a senior strength and conditioning coach 
for the Queensland Academy of Sport and works with Olympic-based sports and athletes. Chris has been involved with elite sport for over 15 years, working across multiple Olympic sports as well as professional football in both the Northern and Southern Hemispheres. Chris also has provided applied sports science projects for the athletes he works with, particularly in the era of salivary hormones, passive heat maintenance, warm-up strategies, power strength development, and of course, blood flow restriction training. On the show today, Chris will take us into many topics of BFR, including its mechanisms and its many benefits. As opposed to methods of pure mechanical stress or pure like neurological power and output, such as plyometric, sprinting, heavy strength training means, which uh, those items do tend to dominate a lot of what we talk about on this show, BFR is more of a physiological-based stressor. And through this discussion, we can gain an appreciation for the contrast of physiological stress to the more mechanical stressors out there. Chris will finish the show talking about how coaches and athletes can integrate BFR training, and he also gives many anecdotes and points of research on how BFR can improve strength, speed recovery, and improve athletes' rehabilitation rates from injury. Finally, before we get started with the show, our sponsor, Simply Faster, is doing a BFR cuff giveaway, which is the Valed Airbands. So if you'd like to get in on that giveaway, which lasts until November 11th, you can sign up for a chance to win a free pair of cuffs uh, by going to this link, bit.ly slash freebfr. So that's bit.ly slash freebfr. That'll take you to the Simply Faster page where you can sign up for a chance to win a free pair of BFR cuffs. So you can try an entry-level version of this technology that's not just using squat wraps for yourself and uh, be able to get in on understanding this element of training the human body. Just a quick disclaimer and note before we get started, research has shown that blood flow restriction training, when used properly, is a very low-risk venture. I think we know that every form of exercise has some risk to it, especially if we mismanage it. And so therefore, I recommend understanding that there are some contraindications to blood flow restriction training, uh, such as blood clots, for example. And it's very important to understand that those do exist before you get into the method. A lot of the app-based cuff systems will have a list for you, but I've included some extra information on BFR safety and protocols that I've posted in the show notes on justflysports.com to accompany this episode. Chris, man, uh, it was really cool hearing about that anecdote you were telling me of how you adjusted your training with COVID with um, a lack of heavy barbells, as I think a lot of people experienced. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the experiments that you were doing with your training in that time period. Yeah, uh, thanks, Joel. And thanks for, for having me on board. As I said, uh, long-time listener, first-time guest, so always excited um, to be on board. And so... Being a strength coach at home, I have a reasonably well-equipped gym, and all these wonderful presentations were coming out on all these at-home training programs. And the one that really stuck out in my mind, um, and all these things were on Zoom. So there was um, Alex Natira's run-specific isometrics. You know how good was that? You know he used an isometric strap, and away he went and created some really good um, practical things that you could do. You know with with a $10 strap, um, which I actually had an athlete break one. Um, but we can talk about that one later on. So it's quite amazing. Just And he doesn't squat. This guy doesn't squat. The Catholic doesn't squat. And anyway, we break a strap. Anyway, back to the story. So, um, you know, so during COVID, I'm at home training with my gym. And like, I'm seeing all this good stuff, like, you know, all the 
you know, Jay Schroeder's got all its long duration isometrics. Um, all, all these presentations are coming out, and I'm going, well, the proof of the pudding is is like for me to experiment. I'm starting to get really inquisitive. You know, um, you know, Verkinchensky's um, books on you know specific strength training, reading about isometrics, but the supersetting with plyometrics, and and I just started to think, well. If at the end of the day we're lifting load and it's about stress, I need to stress the system. So I'm going to challenge myself to no more than 40 kilos. I'm going to use many bands as I can get my hands on. I'm going to use my isometric strap, BFR, which we'll talk a bit more about in a, in a moment, because that's a stressor. Um, you know, normal traditional weightlifting, that's our mechanical stress, the load on our body. BFR is a metabolic stress. So I'm thinking stress is still there. Um, you know, coming from a track and field world, you'll love this. You know, I love my plyometric um, training. Really love jumping. I've got one dodgy knee, but I've got one good knee, so I can do as much as I can, and I can do as much upper body as I can. So, um, I started piecing all these bits and pieces together, and, and really fascinated with the long duration isometrics as well, um, and you know, all the the plyometrics, you know, the preparation work with all the, the reactive jumping and the, the absorbing and the absorbing create and um, created this program, which, which, which I just experimented on myself. I trained as hard as I could um, with as many bands and straps, as I said, no more than 40 kilos. Most of the time it was just a bar because with the bands that was enough. And I had all this testing data leading up to it because as a as a older ex-athlete you know i i need something to keep myself going so you know i'd have all this submax velocity data um i'd have pogo data i'd have vertical jump isometric single leg push and i had three months of no technology available to me so because we couldn't get access to our main gym at work so i was training out at home and just progressing slowly with my training really challenging myself not to lift weight but to push myself as hard as i could with the isometrics and and um with and how much plyometric or jumping work lower and upper body can i do anyway came out of covid and um got back into the gym and found that my isometric push data was was just as good if not better my single leg hop over three 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 multiple jumps improved. Was it technique or was I better? Not quite sure. Um, my bench press, this was really interesting. All my submax test data up to 160 kilos was better than it had ever been. So I've got all this, as I've gotten older, my ability to do a 1RM bench is, is declining, unfortunately. But I've got this, um, it was probably about five years ago now, I benched 194 kilos. Um, and I had all this submax test data, and you know when you, you plot your submax, and it predicted I was 0.7 kilos off, and I thought, wow, this equation really works. And I was actually referring back to that, and I was on target for my 194 bench. But um, this comes down to the adage: if you want a big one RM, you have to train in those high percentage RMs. You know, there's no way about it. Um, but because I hadn't touched anything heavier than, I guess. 40 kilo barbell, but bands and straps, my uh, 80 kilos, 100, 120, 140 was just 
phenomenally fast than it ever been, which then made me think about, you know, the application to sport is, is that, yes, we have to be strong to be powerful. Um, but when we're lifting really heavy loads, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm, I'm, it's sore, it's damaging, you know, and the ability to like wake up the next day and have that um, elasticity feeling good in the joints and all the, um, the muscular tendons junctions, you know, because you have that soreness, I, I think that inhibits um, your ability to perform really well in your skill or your sport. But I was waking up the next day feeling fantastic, really, like literally couldn't wait to go out there again. So consequently, I've got a few athletes, obviously other athletes in lockdown, and we did exactly the same programs. A bit harder because we didn't have the amount of testing data, um, but you know, I have a skeleton athlete that I work with, an Aussie um, young lady who lives in the UK. So we were doing Zoom sessions, UK to Australia, um, track and field athletes um, also in, in Melbourne as well. And, and they were reporting that when, you know, when they're running that their times had not changed at all. So that they're basically on track by not lifting our traditional heavy loads. Yeah, with the the bands, are you talking BFR bands or like like the big jump stretch like bands? Like Yeah. Yeah, uh, the big lifting bands, you oh, know, gotcha. thin to the thick. Yeah, and just yeah, so so that was that was my criteria. I could add as many lifting bands onto that was my stress that you know, I thought well, you know, you you could somehow manage to get a tie down strap and if you're lucky, you could probably, if they hadn't run out of stock, you could probably get some of those lifting bands as well. So I was thinking, you know, if I was in someone's shoes, could I replicate this somewhere else? And I thought that was a pretty good compromise. Gotcha. So uh, what were you doing with um, like the long duration holds, like the the extreme ISO, like long holds there? How, how long were you going on those and how long were those in the program? I'm always curious what people end up doing with, with that and theirs. Yeah, so... Um, I'd like to think that traditionally I was a strength power athlete um, <laughs> coming from a throws background and I struggle with anything over three reps. So bear with me here. Uh, I would have worked up to probably two minutes on um, so my lower body work was um, uh, a Bulgarian squat into a nice big deep stretch. Mm. Love that. Um, the lunge with the front foot on the box. Uh, that were my main two um, calf long duration ISO holds with a calf um, and push-up hold. So that, that were my main keys, uh, key exercise. And I stuck them always at the beginning of the session um, because I thought, you know, it's, it's one good way of getting some good length in my muscles um, to prepare me for lifting. I, I was really warm after. It was amazing, you know, hopefully you could attest to this, like just felt warm after and I was just ready to go. Um, I felt it just really set my session up really nicely into my isometric work. Yeah. When, after talking with a couple of coaches, uh, Jeremiah Flood and Tommy John, who've been on this show, they, I've definitely convinced of the value of, I used to just stick those, that stuff at the end as like a stretchy finisher type thing, but I've been using it at the beginning myself the last several months and I, I love it. And I think about, yeah, like muscle temperature, like, so, you know, the little bit of delayed effect with stretching and going forward into a session and, uh, like the Corey cycle stuff and and just everything there that goes with that, I I really enjoy using that as the warm up. So um, yeah, I was curious how you how you put that in there. Yeah, and I, I'm sure as a shot putter, you said you're a 19 meter shot putter before we started the show. I was just thinking uh, for a 19 meter shot putter to be bust out like a five minute solid 
ISO lunch hold is going to be asking a lot. So I think, uh, yeah, that that's uh, two minutes is like, you know, for a shot for two minutes is pretty solid. Yeah. And by the end there, I was actually adding the cuffs to it as well. So um, really trying to amplify the response to it. And that was just tough. Like, um, my understanding is I was supposed to go like left leg, right leg, um, but I'd have to go left leg. And then I'd go and do, say, an upper body isometric hold. Yeah. And then my right leg. I was just too much of a... That's what I do, too. too. Much of a wuss. <laughs> no, I, that's what I do, too. There's nothing wussy about that. I feel like... Because to do left... Like, if you do those, you should be, like, yeah, trying to actively pull into the bottom and, like, really trying to feel the good position. And if you do a... It's not just the front leg you're working. You're working both legs. And I always... Yeah, if I switch legs, I'm just dying on the... I'm not able to actively engage. So yeah, that push up in the middle, that's always, that's always the thing or whatever. So that's, the, that's yeah. cool. Cause I've, I haven't heard anyone else actually say that that's what they do. So it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's cool to hear that. Um, I really like the idea too of, I, I just feel like it's such a good practice. I like these stories because I think so often in athletic performance and with oftentimes it's like just force, how do we produce more force? And the natural solution, if I have all these tools is well, more weight on the bar. Like, We'll just keep adding more and keep adding more. But it's like at some point, everything becomes so quantitative and and we don't think about the quality of what's happening to. And like you said, like the joint stresses that's happening and just that just sheer stress of, well, I'm just going to keep adding more. And that's how I improve myself. But if we never retreat into the lighter weight realms where things are more and many times they're more qualitative too, like you can't exactly describe some of the things that are happening at high velocity like i know before the show we were talking about how do you uh quantify how good an athlete is at throwing medicine balls (laughs) like things like that like if we never take these retreats and waves from more periods of um quantitative to periods that are we don't have some of these high high force tools i think we really limit our learning and and as well as too just a lot i mean in athleticism in so many situations you don't take your weights with you you know like but the vast majority you don't the vast majority you just have you and your body weight maybe a light implement that you're using yeah i think you know the word there athleticism really resonates with me um you know i think when i first started in the sc industry and coming from a throws background it's about how much weight can you lift you know what's your bench what's your squat it's all about the numbers and then then working with uh, our national discus thrower uh, record holder he trained in uh, Ben Harradine. He trained in Germany under Jürgen Schult, who's the world record holder. And he came back with, and then I, I had the pleasure of working with him in the last few years of his career. And, um, you know, this was a guy who uh, his best bench was under, under, when I worked with him, was 210 kilos. Um, I actually thought he could be a lot stronger with the size that he was. I thought his trans- transfer to the event was exceptional. Um, but what he did well is, is, he, is all his movement exercises and his athleticism and, you know, you know, the Russian twist with the bar wasn't just twisting. It was like, you know, really trying to initiate with the hip and you could actually see um, the flow and, and almost like that, the, the slings, you know, whether there's a fascial sling at work, their hip will come, there's a slight delay. And then the upper body will come through and you see it decelerate. It's very, very poetic. I'm, I'm, you know, probably the listeners can't see, but I'm actually doing the action and um, the wonderful flow. And, you know, as we've progressed, it's, I think as a strength coach, it's like, it's easy to say, 
well, I've improved the athletes 5%, so I'm doing a really good job. Very hard to quantify. Well, I tell you what, when the athletes are able to, when I throw a med ball and they like with, with the beach volleyball athletes I'm working with, when they can step laterally, catch a ball outstretched like they would be digging a ball, be able to catch eccentrically, absorb the force, hold, and then throw it back. Like I've definitely known in two months that, that the quality of movement is so much better. The force coming back, the balls are coming so hard at me. Hard to quantify that mm-hmm. to your boss. Um, however, I've worked with some really great coaches who can actually see that and just go, that's what we're looking for. Um, so that's been the, the interesting shift definitely you know, from the first part of my career where it was all about just smash out those big weights to like, you know, thinking of those deeper questions about, you know, firstly, like if we're going to lift the big weights, how does that affect us in our training session the next day? Um, you know, and, and is that going to be inhibited? And can we be smarter with our exercise selection so that they can go and perform even better the next day? Yeah, I, I- I really like the idea of just things that help us do more with less with if there's less total you know force output you know like a heavy bar available what are some things that we can utilize to get more out of this and that's where I I really am excited to talk to you about the BFR too cuz I I feel like that's just such an epitome of doing more physiologically with with less total load on the body and so could we just start by um, telling me a little bit about, uh, however long you want to go into this, but just what is blood flow restriction training and then where did it originate? Yeah, so blood flow restriction training, so we'll actually go back to where it originated from. So it originates out of Japan. Um, it was originally called Katsu, which is a called, it's a method, when they, when they talk about it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a method of strength training with the, the addition of pressure. And they put this pressure on uh, either the upper body um, around the biceps or the arms or the lower body with the legs. And the creator was this gentleman called Yoshiaki Sato. And the story goes is that while sitting on the floor, as we could all attest to, his legs felt numb and due to this blood circulation block. And then over time, he was interested around us and he continued with self-experimentation with bicycle tubes and ropes and bands. And then um, as the story keeps going, around 1970s, um, he fractured his ankle or tore some knee ligaments around his knee. And in a cast, he actually applied some elastic bands and did isometric exercises um, for time, a few times a day. And when he came out of the cast, he actually was able to show that well, we actually maintained a lot of the muscle mass, which as we know, when we immobilize um, ourselves in, in a cast due to injury, we just atrophy so quickly. And then from that point there, um, he created the own, his own katsu system, um, which is quite prolific. And, and um, so today we're, we're talking about blood flow restriction and we've got to be careful, I guess, sometimes using the word restriction and because when you read um, the Katsu manual, and there's a, there's a really good book, um, if anyone's interested, and in I've got it here, uh, Katsu, The Pressure Training from Japan. It was a book written by um, a German gentleman, and, and I'll tell you what it is. And, and if anyone's really interested in it, it, it probably goes a little bit deeper into BFR, because BFR, in my opinion, is, is really academically driven. A uh, lot of research, and, and there's some great information coming out there, but I think Katsu encapsulates um, that research, but also um, has a real practical viewpoint 
um, with, and I'll go through some practical viewpoints uh, um, in a moment. So what we know as BFR, that there's several ways of doing it. You know, if we go on the internet, um, we can see some those really expensive systems where it's, it's essentially like a blood pressure cuff um, and you put it around your upper body. And then, you know, if we're looking at our really expensive systems, um, it's called a Delphi system and it has a pump which regulates the pressure um, throughout the whole movement. So we calculate our training pressure and it's, it's always a percentage of arterial occlusion. So I think that's a thing that I think people hear the word restriction and go, oh, we're restricting blood flow completely. We're not actually doing that. We're moderating blood flow or we're working at a percentage of our arterial occlusion. Um, and then we go to systems where you can inflate it with a pump and understand how much pressure you have through the use of a gauge. And then you can take the, the pump off and you can exercise. And then when you start looking at, I guess, the, the, the cheaper or the more affordable or the really affordable end, um, you know, lifting straps. You know, the, the knee wraps that you see all the powerlifters use out there, um, that's called practical BFR. And there's actually some really great academic peer-reviewed studies using that and having really effective results. Um, it's just got to be mindful about understanding what pressure is. Um, so the, in, in that case, they use an RP of 7 out of 10, um, your typical Borg 10-point um, 10, 10 scale. Um, but you've got to understand, you know, what a seven out, what I think a seven out of ten is, and an untrained athlete, a seven out of ten can be totally different. Um, so, and that's where look, you know, the katsu world um, really comes into its own. So, um, they have like all these different cross check um, points. So, color of the skin, for example. So, your color of the skin should be a nice reddish color. So, if it's too tight, it's going to go blue. Or it's going to go um, purple color. That would that would be do. true restriction, right? Like that would be the true, as per the what yeah. we the verbiage, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and the other one is called capillary refill time. So um, because we have this nice reddish color in our skin, so if we're doing upper body BFR, um, it's on our palm. So you just press just that nice big fat pad under your thumb. You press it in, it would go white because we're pushing all the blood out of the capillaries, and it should refill in around two to three seconds. Um, if it's six seconds, it's a little bit too slow. And so that's too tight. And if we're doing lower body training, it's on our VMO on our nice, um, on a nice tier, um, you just press there and you should see that same kind of effect and little things like, you know, are we getting appropriate fatigue across the sets as well? So I haven't answered your question yet. So um, I've gone a little bit off track there, but I, I think that's, you know, I'll, I'll give those little anecdotes about Katsu because I, I think it's fascinating because um, they do go a little deeper and, and probably a little bit more practical in, in my opinion. Uh, and then we'll talk about the repetition scheme as well. But um, so as a result, um, back to what is BFR doing, we're partially restricting, restricting blood flow. So what that enables us to do is you're actually restricting the venous return of the blood from your muscles. So the blood flows freely into the muscle, that's the arterial blood flow, but you're restricting it coming back out. So consequently, as you can Im imagine there, you have this slight pooling of blood. But the other really interesting thing here is we're creating a localized hypoxic environment because um, there's less oxygen getting to the muscles. And this increases metabolic stress. And, and it's what I alluded to earlier is, is that this metabolic stress is key 
um, to to creating the different responses with BFR that that gives us um, the responses which are similar to high load lifting. Um, and, and typically, there's there's five main, more common ones. The first one is this increase in concentration of metabolites, and in low load, high repetition lifting. Um, if you've ever done, have you ever done BFR work before? Yeah, I have. Yeah, so you get that pump, you get that feeling of fullness. It's that lactate accumulating, and that feeling of 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 fullness, or the, or more so the lactate. They talk about that being a signaling molecule, and, and this is all about just pathways and activations, and and that pseudo hormone or the the lactamone um, has the, the consequent uh, releasing of you know, different growth factors. It helps regulate cell proliferation and differentiation. Um, the second one is hormonal responses, which is is fascinating in terms of, you know, how do we improve our anabolic hormonal response naturally, um, I think is really important because we know that it helps these hormones, anabolic response, you know, not only does it help um, correlate really well with, um, strength, speed, and power helps with protein synthesis for, for muscle growth. But also like testosterone, for example, is really interesting around behaviors and especially in athletes. So, you know, if we have high levels of testosterone, we have increased levels of aggression as it's known to be. But in, in athletes, determination is a really cool quality. Um, and there's a really, really good study on um, increased testosterone concentrations actually correlated with increased amount of um, work actually done in a session through more load hmm. put onto the bar. So all of a sudden you're feeling really good about yourself. You know, it's like when you go to a gym, you're feeling great, the, the scene set perfectly, and you end up just in, increasing the amount of stress on the system because you're doing more reps, you're putting more weight on the bar. So we have our hormonal responses. And the third, the third mechanism is called intramuscular signaling. And this is just the different stimulation of intramuscular signaling pathways, which is independent of those hormones and the different growth factors. You know, so we're talking here heat shock proteins, myostatin, mTOR pathways, um, which is just fascinating. You know, this is the stuff that, you know, heat shock protein is interesting. Side little note here, um, just around, you know, the role of heat, you know, post lifting, like the ability to use heat to increase the, the, the stimulation of the heat shock protein pathways. There's, there's cool, I don't know if you ever remember a study, there was one where they had two groups and um, they did no lifting, but one used heat sheets um, to heat the muscles and the second had none. And those who used heat actually got stronger. Really? Um, which is just that stimulation of the heat shock protein. So heat, heavy strength training, but also BFR can also stimulate this. Uh, the fourth mechanism is one of the cool things uh, associated with BFR, and that's intramuscular or intracellular swelling or the pump. And this is what happens when you, you have this pump, you have the increased pressure uh, around the muscle cell and the cell feels threatened. And as a result, there's a signaling response. And because the body actually doesn't like the seclusion, so it really thinks something's going on. And so you have this, once again, this activation of anabolic signaling pathways, once again, mTOR or mPAC. Um, you know, so don't get bogged too much down on, do I need to know what an mTOR is or mPAC? But just understand that you know, 
they associate with, you know, protein synthesis, you know, increase in, in muscle size and growth or, you know, different gene expressions such as, you know, proliferation of satellite cells, which is really exciting because, you know, how can we do this stuff naturally when we're reading, you know, different papers and saying, well, if we're able to, you know, I- improve, you know, get proliferation of satellite cells, it's going to help with, you know, muscle strength and so forth. Um, and, and the fifth main mechanism that they talk about is muscle fiber recruitment. And as I spoke about earlier, because we're restricting, partially restricting blood flow, less oxygen's getting to our muscles. Um, so our slow twitch aerobic fibers tire out quicker than normal and our big type two fibers actually get innovated. And there's, there's lots of really good studies out there that have actually shown improvements in type two muscle fiber contribution, um, which actually brings to me another study where I remember it said that um, it, you used a bunch of power lifters and it was like type one fibers got hypertrophied and type two fibers um, decreased. And so everyone's saying, don't use BFR. And I was an, actually an athlete that I, a sprinter, 100 meter sprinter. And I had other people going up to me and going, you can't use BFR because it's going to make you run slower. But like every study, you've got to read what's going on. So someone's read the title and freaked out, but you read it and these lifters, these power lifters, they're lifting five t- squatting five times a week. Um, so firstly, a track and field athlete, well, most athletes wouldn't be squatting five times a week. Yeah. Um, I'll squat my athletes once a week and I'll do my, my Olympic lifting and single leg work and so forth but i wouldn't be using bfr for every every single lift every single session um and you know you're doing your high velocity work as a sprinter as well but what was really interesting is and and i really love studies that rather than just showing the the group mean and the standard deviation they actually show they plot every single athlete that they had in the study and what was interesting was the amount of responders to it and when you start digging into anything, it's like, and that's our craft as an SNC coach is being able to understand when we give them, whether it's BFR or whether it's, you know, plyometrics or fast eccentric work or isometric, you know, do they respond? And that was key in that one there. So I think sometimes when we, we read all these wonderful papers and people go, we can't use it because. It's got all these things wrong with it. Well, you need to dig a little deeper because you got to understand um, the protocol that they use as well and the athletes and so forth. So look, there are five main mechanisms behind um, BFR, uh, and that's traditionally what what, um, helps give that basic understanding behind why it works. Just wanted to take a quick break from the show and reiterate that our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, is a supplier of blood flow restriction training technology. You can find in their shop online either the Valve Airbands or the Be Strong brand. Either of them, great choices for getting into blood flow restriction training, uh, as well as many of the other great pieces of training tech that SimplyFaster has in their store. So be sure to check that out. And again, to win a free pair of BFR cuffs, head to bit.ly slash free BFR for your chance to win. All right, back to the show. Sure. Uh, so 
With uh, with that being said, and I have a few thoughts, but I'll just ask you this is um, formally then what are the benefits that like, yes, BFR will help with definitively with this? And then what are some things that maybe it wouldn't be as helpful with? Like, I am curious, like if a sprinter were using it in, in like recovery sessions, for example, but maybe uh, <laughs> I, I won't get too far with that. Just um, what are some of the main things that BFR is definitively useful for in training athletes? Yeah, definitely. It's more so well known for lifting at low lows. So 20 to 30% of 1RM, it's been shown to improve muscle hypertrophy and also strength. Now, we're talking about athletic populations. So if we, we go back a step, so normally in an in a injury or a rehab scenario, um, that's where we see a lot of BFR. But there's actually, um, there's actually, interestingly, only been one high-load study that I read by Christian Cook um, where they looked at using BFR on the thighs and they squatted uh, it was twice a week or three times a week. So they did five by five, so a bit more of a traditional strength training program on professional rugby union play. So we're getting closer to our elite athlete population or athletic population. They did five by five squats bench press and pull-ups and um, at 70% of their 1RM. So we're starting to get higher load lifting um, with the cuffs only on the thighs. Now, their 30-meter sprint improved greater compared to the control that did the same training without the cuffs. So around 70%, that's what we're being prescribed through um, all our literature that that needs to be our minimal percentage RM stimulus to create enough stress in the system to create the responses. Um, and they improved their bench press, which shows that there's some sort of systemic response. And that was also highlighted with improvements in testosterone co- concentration as well. Um, and it was also improvements in vertical jump. So you, when we start to think about, you know, we spoke earlier um, when sometimes when we get bogged down in the heavy load lifting now in ath- athletic populations, in my opinion, load is still king. We need to be prescribing, you know, a, a high level of mechanical stress on the system that produces the best response. But could we dial that percentage RM down a little bit, still use the BFR cuffs, and therefore give them a little bit more um, ability, a little bit more juice in the tank, I guess is an easy word to say, for their session when they go and run because you know as we spoke about earlier when we go and lifting heavy we're so sore that and potentially that could affect us neurally even to perform our our speed session the next day so could we be smarter with that so that's probably our our first one now there's there's some other really cool things so like we talk about improvements in anabolic uh all our anabolic hormones testosterone so think about hormonal priming how can we prime the body um, prior to when we train using hormones as one of our key drivers because it correlates so well with strength, speed, power, and also those really good behaviors that we want our athletes to exhibit, determination, willingness to train hard. There's other things around using it um, as a recovery modality as well, or actually prior to events. And this is using it passively. So we, we haven't even spoken about using this so you know we traditionally think bfr has to be done with exercise all the time um but passively um where you would do cycles of inflation and deflation um 
and it would be like, say, it's called ischemic preconditioning. And in this world, you traditionally would hold it for, say, three minutes on, one minute off. And there's been shown to be using that prior to more so slightly longer duration efforts, but even in, in kayakers, um, I think it was a 250-meter or 500-meter sprint. They used it prior to they – had, they had two races or two simulator races within a day. And if they would do it prior to their race, they would perform better. Mm. So if they did it in the morning, race one, and then they did it in between race one and two, they would perform better than at any stage they didn't do it at all. And there's also been some real cool studies on using it post-training and then their ability to then come back the next day now and perform just as well. Now, is that potentiation or is that better recovery? Great question. Yeah, it uh, highlights like the, the complex nature of the body. Like sometimes it's hard to say exactly what it is. It's just, you know, it works. And then there's maybe a little bit of speculation in there. Um, so would you say like the biggest, when I think of training and I'll just say like some of the things in my head that I think had held me back from really getting into BFR were, well, one muscle physiology was not my strong suit compared to, uh, to exercise, like just, all right, what exercises, how is this impacting the nervous system and, and those types of things. But I realized that this, it's something that I uh, to look at the body as a holistic piece and to get the best out of training, it's something I need to really engage in. And that's where I like this this topic because it's something that clearly gets results and it helps provide a gateway to physiology. So in terms of the the things, the physiological responses you mentioned that are elicited, um, I, I just, uh, maybe I'll go through a few of those. And I I think about like the, the you mentioned like lactate. Um, and I think about how Bush Nextator has talked about on this podcast, like he wants on like the benefits of a mild to moderate dose of lactate, even in like some sprint acceleration sessions doing like uh, maybe eight by 20 or eight by 30 meter sprints on short recovery, just enough to induce that. And that being, he'll mention that being a positive, a positive thing. So what, um, I mean, when doing BFR type work, do, is there studies showing like, yes, there's more lactate in the system versus uh, I guess there is probably right because the the you don't have oxygen, so you have no other choice but to produce more lactate. Can you could you tell me just a little bit more about that mechanism? Because that that is interesting to me because it's something that uh, yes, we could get by creating an exercise setup, as, but we could also do it with the cuffs. Yeah. Um. So that there, so your your lactate creates an oxidative stress response. And then this augments the stem or progenitor cells growth and differentiation. And this is this has this transduction cascade of those growth factors. Um, so it it's a in this case it's a signaling molecule as opposed that's probably its main mechanism as with all of it. So um, you know so for example um, in long term structural adaptations. There's been a, some studies been shown that lactate increases collagen synthesis in fibroblasts, which is also essential for blood vessel formation and wound healing. And also correlations have also been shown between increased lactate levels and concentrations of growth hormone and noradrenaline after BFR training. Um, and also with relation to alter sensations of pain by chemically sensitizing nerve endings as well. Um, so without going 
too too deep in there because we're going to start drawing out some heavy papers. So, you know, we think of lactate um, to be this quite a bad thing. Um, but it, but in this case here, in isolated studies, um, it's actually been shown to have, you know, correlations. You know, is, is that the main causal factor? Um, once again, really good question. Um, but definitely some great correlations, especially when we start to look at that hormonal um, factor of growth hormones and, and noradrenaline and so forth. Yeah, with um, with the um, so with like the muscle temperature and the the warm up, uh, like let's just say in the in the context of a strength training session, because um, I, I I was thinking about um, you know you're talking about heat, and I was thinking about using like the long isometric holds prior to a training session, or just like. Um, I like the idea even too of um, like playing pickup sports as an, an awesome warm up for anything you're doing explosively because like the emotional state's different. You're doing a lot more work. You're getting blood temperature up a lot compared to a lot of typical warm up sessions where it's like, all right, just get in lines, do these drills. Like that temperature is is massively up there. So uh, how would you utilize something like this in context of a, a warm up? I mean, would you use it in addition to isometrics or um, or is that it? Would that would it be uh, common to do it for a warm-up more so than the typical because i'm just thinking i just have it in my head like wow that could be a really cool like ma- warm-up maximizer for whatever i'm gonna do later you know from a muscle temperature standpoint could you tell me about how um is it would it be more common or a common thing to utilize it in warm-up versus the main session or uh, tell me a little bit more about that yeah it, we can use this in several ways and um the other, before I get into how we, we, we talk, how we could use it in, in a couple of different ways is, is it's actually really good for joint and tendon pain as well. Um, so whether you're just a little stiffer in the morning um, or you have, you know, you might have athletes who have some sort of tendinopathy as well, being able to use BFI and use movements which go through those ranges. So if we think about um, patella tendonitis, you know, squatting. Um, single leg squatting, double leg squatting, uh, leg extension can really help. Um, walking for Achilles tendonitis, there was um, uh, an athlete, a state of origin. He had this chronic um, Achilles tendinopathy. He'd just walk like an old man in the morning. So we just did a routine, put them on the thighs, walk, um, do 10 was like 10 calf raises. You want to get like, you want to get that lactate going. You want to get everything moving as well. And then just into some isometric holds and then repeat that again. And found just by creating really simple movement patterns, there was no real science behind it, but I was just thinking, well, how do I move the body so that he feels like he wants to move? Because you think about like, if you're really stiff and sore, it's just hard to move. You know, how can we get the athlete moving? So based upon that, if you would come into the gym, there was a couple of ways we could do it. We could, you could put them on and actually start riding with them straight away on the bike. Um, and that's a great way. There's actually been some, some cool studies on improving VO2 max, um, improving leg strength as well. Now, in a lot of these studies, they aren't elite athletes. And I think you've got to take that slightly with a grain of salt. Um, but definitely, I, you know, I have known that you know, we, we put them on when we warm up on the bike and then you know, if you then move into your, your simple activation exercises and while you're doing anything, it could be like yeah, if you're doing your mini band, crab walks, um, any kind of balance work, your medicine ball. So sometimes with the beach volleyballers, we'll do a, a medicine ball um, movement where we do some hip hops and some, some slams, 
Um, and then we'll have movement routines, so like squat into a Cossack squat, into a reverse lunge, into a step up. So creating just all these movements. Um, and then you just find usually it takes you four sets. You can actually, you actually go in quite well in, in two sets. So you, you, you're just looking at what you would do normally for a warm up and you're just actually adding the cuffs in. Um, and then we move into our main, main set exercises. If we're doing any kind of Olympic lifting, I don't have a mind partly because the bar will hit the cuffs on the way through. But, you know, if it's a squat day, um, usually once to about 80, if we're going to lift above 80% of RM, traditionally we have them off. Um, although I did have one athlete that he, he felt when he did his step-ups and he's squatting with the cuffs on, he ran a good, his 400 meter time was really good. So he really found there was a strong relationship with his, with his sprinting and how much he used it in his strength training sessions. And he would actually lift very similar. Um, it'd be like a 150 step up um, or 150 kilo step up and probably at a 170 with the cuffs off. Um, and then we'd use that as our warm up sets to our, to our main set. So, you know, you know, 60, uh, 70, 80% RM, and then we start our main set, and then we can take the cuffs off. Depending on the athlete, you know, they might actually find they're really enjoying that sensation. And if we're using really high loading, we might then look at um, using more of an intermittent pressure protocol. So what that is, is there's two ways of, of holding pressure. One is continuously. So you have the, the cuffs inflated the whole time or you know, the bandage strapped on the whole time, or we use an intermittent protocol. So once you finish the set, you deflate the cuff or you release the pressure. Um, if the mechanical stress is low, we, we need more metabolic stress to create the right environment for the signaling and activation of all the different pathways. Um, so we need to keep that continuous pressure on the whole time. But if the intensity starts increasing, you can actually decrease or have more of an intermittent protocol. Um, and then from that, so we do our main part of our session. And then the next part to bring it in is around our finishes. So if we have hard gainers or, um, you know, people trying to do some hypertrophy, I do remember the English sprint cycling um, team were in Brisbane and I saw them finish. They would just do Bulgarians at the end of their sets, like right at the end, you know, and usually by then you lifted all your heavy load you know, it's very hard to get, you know, anything of real good quality or substance at the end of the session. This is perfect. You know, you put the cuffs on, whether it's upper or lower, you know, put the weight right down and you put the reps up and you're getting that response, that hypertrophic response that you're trying to look for. And you're actually able to get more out of the session. And probably you could get done within two sets instead of, you know, three to four. Yeah, it's interesting. So as you're going through this, I, I, in my mind, I, a lot of times I'm really trying to bucket things like what, like what, what's the most simple base term to say what this does versus um, like, let's say, a, um, the effect of a heavy squat or a max sprint. And I think about it, it's almost as if it's like, you have the, the neuro on one hand, all the, the neural potentiation. And then it seems like this is almost more purely physiological, like in the muscle, the energetics of the muscle. And I, I'll take that too. I had a conversation um, when Dr. Mark Wetzel, a chiropractor or chiropractic neurologist was on recently, he was talking about the idea of short recovering long. 
or the idea of do a short, quick sprint. And then if you did like a longer effort, like something that's like 25, 30, 40 seconds, or even a little bit less, but it's intense, like the two kind of have effect where they kind of can recover each other. Or like the idea of if I do a long isometric hold at the end of a training session, I'll feel better going into the next one. Uh, or even um, a lot of uh, Andy Egger, uh, track coach, was on the show talking about for some athletes, if you took out some of these longer sprints in the program, like a 300 meter ish sprint, that they would actually get worse because that long sprint kind of brought them into this sweet spot, so to speak, where there was a little bit of lactate coming up in the system. And I, what I'm trying to say is I, I think about um, this type of work, the blood flow restriction. I had this whole entity is almost that, that sweet spot, if you will, where you're starting to get into a little bit of lactate that, and you're recovering the lower energy systems, if that makes sense. Um, I'm trying to, oh, I'm trying to figure out where I want to go with this, but my thought is almost like, like, like do something explosive, do something that's, that's the opposite to recover it, right? In a sense. Um, what I want to ask, I guess, is where, um, cause I, I, and I do, I love, like, I'll prescribe all the time things like, like do a squatted run for 200 meters at the end of your session or uh, a Darian bar one time had me do a 400. That was really, really rough, but funny enough, I actually <laughs> ran really fast a few days later. Um, despite of just a total, you know, lactate bath in my glutes and stuff like that. But I, I mean, there was something about that and the feeling too, like you've mentioned feeling and sometimes you do something like, Hey, go do a squatted run for 300 meters. You're going to feel your glutes. Like, and I almost think yeah. of how you feel that in a similar way as what BFR enables. Like it's this pooling, this, this, like, there's just this greater connection happening there. Anyways, what I was trying to ask is where if you didn't have like if there was no bfr like wh- where would this happen in nature if that makes sense like like a 400 meter sprint 100 meter freestyle like where are the similar mechanisms or those spots in in sport or cycling right like are there similar conditions that happen in a muscle at some of these key places in sport that we would see obviously it's probably going to be harder to get there right like you could strap on bfr cuffs and boom you're there there but like Hey, you got to go run. Otherwise, you got to go run a 400 and you'll get it in the last like, you know, yeah. 10 seconds or something. But yeah, I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. In, in the, the bodybuilding world, I think this is probably the easiest way of explaining it. And it's um, Verkinchensky. It's actually in his book. He's, it's slow dynamic exercise with reduced amplitude. So um, you, basically, you're not going to full extension. Um, and not full flexion. So you've got that mid-range going the whole time. And what that what Verkinchensky talks about in his book, it just it just impairs the blood circulation um, and, and keeps the muscle fibers tense. And that, because you're avoiding relaxation, you know, um, you're actually be able to create that that pooling effect. Um, you know, and his his uh, points that he brought out. You know, it's a slow rate of repetition movement. It's a steady and constant tempo. Um, and you could imagine that the, um, the amplitude is, is considerably reduced um, and that the exercise is you're never allowed to relax. So when you, you're training with BFR, the, the muscles are on the whole time. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine a bicep curl is probably the easiest way. If you're just having that, that mid-range, that pump the whole time, you have that feeling of pooling. Because um, the muscles just aren't able to relax, the forearm will start feeling big, um, or squatting mid-range as well, and where the quads are just feeling full. And then, just as you said about cycling, you think about that um, when you when you're sprinting on on the bike, you got that steady state, 
working quite hard. The lactate's pooling. Um, there's no, you're always tense the whole time. There's no um, full lengthening of the limb. There's no relaxation. Um, so that's probably our main main areas um, where typically that's where we would get something like that. All back into um, the original creator where you'd um, sit down on and fold your arm, fold your legs. You know that that was really interesting. That's his original concept around katsu um, led on to BFR. Yeah, uh, it's interesting with the the constant tension because I know track coaches have used like kind of bodybuilding style lightweight circuits to recover to recover the other days, and it makes me think, mm-hmm. yeah, like the constant tension being an important part of that. I I guess like for an athlete like me, like very elastic, like I actually have to run pretty far, like farther than a person who was not very elastic to actually get that that um, physiological state. Because I think I like if. If it's dynamic, like a sprint too, it's just, you know, you get to contract, relax, contract, relax. You probably have to go a little farther before you get in that place. Whereas bodybuilding is, you can get there physiologically pretty quick. And then it seems like the bands is just, so would the bands really be, it's almost like a more, if it will get you there faster and it will get you there with less mechanical stress on the system, basically. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Um, so one question I want to ask you quickly is, is there situations in the weight room, I've heard like mechanical occlusion, like doing a glute ham raise or a preacher curl, you know, there are there situations where like just what you're doing might give you an occluding effect? Um, is that something that, that are you any situations there possibly? Yeah, and, and that's why that reduced amplitude of movement is probably y- your best way. So, you know, if you, if you want to get into it, you know, you, you're doing a, a Bulgarian squat or, um, you know, and actually you just, you're staying under tension the whole time. You're staying down low. Um, that's probably the closest that we're going to get to it. Um, it, it that's probably it. But um, I remember once I went to a gym and I forgot my cuffs and I was devastated. And um, I, I did a session like that and it was actually really good, but um, the effect is just not, as good as when you have the cuffs on w- without a doubt um and we spoke about earlier about you know one of the things that people talk about also is a feeling of activation and supportedness around a joint um so and i spoke to a few people about this you know that just conceptually um when you get people coming in to start lifting for the very first time um you know there's a huge learning process associated with just having a barbell on, on the back. So it's a long time because all those neural connections with the technique improvement, long time until we see some sort of visual uh, and um, change, but also performance change in terms of load lifted. You know, just putting it out there, like could we be using BFR effectively to get those changes physiologically within a muscle at a really light weight whilst working technique? So we're just doing barbell work um, with the bar on our back grooving really good movement patterns, putting the BFR cuffs on at a light load, and the athletes are actually feeling those, has that feedback mechanism as well to go, I can really feel my glutes work, I can feel my uh, my quads um, active, or I can feel my calves working when I'm doing my, my calf raises. Um, conceptual, but and, and then do we actually have an acceleration of improvement um, from a performance aspect as well? Yeah. Um, so final, like, yeah. So with all that said, uh, maybe the last thing we could depart with was 
what does this tend to look like uh, in the course of maybe a standard training week? Uh, and then also maybe tell me a little bit about athletes who maybe had tendinopathy or recovering from injury. So uh, maybe we could start with like standard training week and then how it can help athletes who uh, have special situations. Yeah, definitely. So the, the sprinters that I work with, um, they will one sprint turn a meter um, sprinter uh, at Tokyo Olympics. She'll use it um, as part of her warm up in the gym. Um, she'll also use a movement routine prior to training on the track as well, uh, and then select exercises on her ancillary. So we do all her calf and her hamstring work on the same day as her sprint day. So she'll alternate um, sprint, gym, sprint, gym. So rather than doing our calf and hamstring work on our gym day, we just found that she wasn't coping with it because there was a large contribution of calf and hamstring when she sprints. So let's actually just put all that on her sprint days. So she'll actually get probably four to five touches throughout a week. Um, the, some of the beach volleyball athletes that I work with, they'll use in the gym, but also they'll use it um, prior to hopping on the sand. So we'll go down to the courts. And whilst they're actually moving around, getting like doing all their, their shoulder activation, sometimes I'll put them on their upper body and do all their shoulder activation, but they'll have them on their legs and they'll be walking around and they'll be, you know, getting themselves set up. They'll do all their little squat routines, their movement routines. Um, so really kind of tailor it. And it's not, I don't do it with absolutely everyone, but um, definitely tailor it to, to certain athletes um, depending on the suitability, I guess. Um, and then some really good stories. This is my best one so far. Um, so leading up to Tokyo Olympics, uh, um, I had a decathlete. And so we had a three-week camp and then they would fly out to Tokyo and he was to compete the next week. So we did our first week of training and then we're going to have, a, we had a competition on that weekend and you know, you just, you, I was at the 110 meter hurdle race and I was at this start line sitting back and I was going, you know, you just have those funny spidey sensations where you just go, something's just not right. Anyway, he tore his hamstring. Um, so you would think three weeks out from the Olympics, he's not going to make it. Grade two, medial hamstring, bit of tendon. Um, and I said to him, I said, what are you doing? And he said, we're going for it. We are going to go what we can. So then it kicked into overdrive. So we start thinking about from a systemic viewpoint, um, we need to create an anabolic hormonal environment to improve muscle recovery. So straight away, it was like upper body. We're doing upper body sessions at least twice a day. And you say, what am I doing all this for? So we're doing all this. So we're creating this anabolic hormonal healing environment. Um, then on his good leg, we're um, putting, it, putting it on, using it passively. Then once we can actually get um, some work done, um, once, he, once the, the tenderness is gone from the hamstring, I'm using it passively because I, I know that there's, you know, there's reported passively, you're improving motor, mitochondrial carrying capacity of, of the blood using it that way as well. So every opportunity we could get it so... He was very tender. We would walk. So all his strength sessions, we could only lift a low load. So we'd be using BFR. 
um, really um, some great studies on using it in low intensity exercise. So as soon as he could cycle on a bike, we got the cuff on. So he's having probably four hits of BFR and, and creating this constant environment for the body to heal and get stronger at lower intensities. Um, what was interesting, he, you know, traditionally we're in this tight taper phase leading to Olympics. But I said, mate, we need to work. We need to be working harder. You need to get your confidence back. Um, before he would run, he would have it on and you could see him, you know, doing all these low amplitude dribbling with it on and then he would take it off as the amplitude of the movement got greater. Um, and we worked hard for two weeks, uh, got to the Olympics and completed the decathlon. No hide um, in the in the pole vault, unfortunately, but uh, his name was Cedric Dubler and a famous scene of him yelling at his teammate Ash Maloney and Ash ended up winning a bronze. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, so there's those those two. Now, Ash, interestingly, um, has this patella tendonitis issue. And I remember years ago, um, because everyone thinks every time I get an athlete, I just stick a BFR cuff on them. Uh, but whereas I pick and choose. So I remember for the first six weeks, I kind of left the cuff off and, you know, I let the, the it was a hard physio driven program. It was great, you know, lots of good isometrics and eccentrics using our traditional protocols. And you just had pain at patella. So I said, okay, six weeks, let's just try. We're doing some um, single leg squatting in a Smith machine. Let's put the cuff on. And within set number two of six, uh, it was six to eight reps, pain had gone. You know, so it's like, well, and that's what we're seeing. It's really good for joint and tendon pain. So, he were able to to straight away get rid of the pain in in, in the tendon and actually train and some and this pain attenuation actually holds for the whole session and I've actually had people use it who've had really bad arthritic knee joints and sometimes report up to twenty four hours of pain relief as well. Wow, that's probably my two biggest biggest stories. The the hamstring one was phenomenal. And look, you know. You could say, well, it was the location of the hamstring, and we had like really good therapy. We used our game ready. The recovery was great. Um, but, you know, his performances were, you know, weren't far off his, his best. It was, it was unbelievable. He even did some PBs in, in these throws. So um, I, I truly think the mechanisms that were able to activate due to BFR really contributed to him getting on the line and being able to compete for 10 events. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, it's, how do you, um, like, if it's restricting oxygen and blood flow, I mean, it is pooling, right? But, like, I would think, like, with re- recovery, like, you want blood flow, right? Like, this, I'm just curious how you reconcile that or how that, I know you've talked about all the different cool physiological things that it does. I'm sure it could be a lot, you know, those, but with less blood flow or tendinopathy too, right? Like, tendons don't have a lot of blood flow. I'm just curious. It's interesting to me. Yeah, and once so, so with with the pain, it, it's the the activation of different pathways, um, which which I guess is the um, the or the mechanisms behind the use there. So it's not necessarily the restriction of the blood flow, but um, by by this metabolic stress. So yeah. you know, they talk about stimulation of the opioids and endocannabinoid systems. Um, so you have increasing metabolites, and this stimulates muscle chemoreceptors and, and, and just activates your group three and four afferent fibers. And I'd have to go deep into physiology books, you know, to, to go 
further in this conversation. I'm sure you'd have some mm-hmm. guests who could could take this conversation even further. Um, but it's really, you know, a lot of this comes around this hypoxic environment um, or the increase in metabolic stress tends to activate these different pathways. Um, you know, talk about, you know, conditioned pain modulation. So it seems to somehow, because of this uh, opioid or endocannabinoid systems, you know, it has a, some sort of inhibitory pathway effect, effect as well. Um, so, yeah, and it, it's mainly because you're able to increase the – it's a stress, and yeah. r- really we're just using metabolic stress instead of mechanical stress. That's the way we do it. And then that releasing factor still, like when you take it off, um, and becomes a, a really big systemic effect um, also. So, yeah, really fascinating when you kind of think, well, hey, we're restricting blood flow, but um, we're actually getting some really good muscle recovery effects. Um, but you do have this, you know, the the, um, the ischemic preconditioning is where you inflate, deflate. So you think about, you know, your simple, you know, Normatec system or your compression boot systems where you have, Compression, relax, compression, relax. Um, you know, that has that recovery type feel as well. So um, using BFR in, in that occurrence has been shown to improve recovery also um, in between and improve performance in between bouts, which is which is just fascinating. So it's kind of like by sitting there doing nothing, you potentially could be improving your performance. Just by inflating and deflating some some BFR cuffs or or using your knee wraps. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, it makes me think about if it's so powerful for those fast rehab situations. Just the general effect on muscles is uh, even if you know not rehabbing is is powerful and and yeah, it's really an interesting. It's just really an interesting, uh, especially getting into the physiology and like as opposed to mechanical stress, because so much of my coaching is just <laughs> based off mechanical stress. And that's why I appreciate this conversation, because it really keys me into the physiology and we want to train the whole system. So that, um, this is a really great, um, this is all really great information for me to learn. Lastly, um, so if people are interested in getting into this, um, how do you recommend they start like to like length the time for sets and sessions and protocols? Like what are... Um, what's a good starting point for this from, um, I mean, I guess we could do a whole other show on protocols, right? But if they, people just want to learn more and they want to get started, like what units to look at or, you know, like what just, um, yeah, just give us a little bit of a heads up on yeah. where to start. Yeah, definitely. So, um, typically what you would do is, uh, the amount. So if we're going to talk about units pressure, um, so Katsu talks about Katsu units in, um, with blood pressure cuffs, millimeters of mercury. And one katsu unit equals one millimeter of mercury. So when you're reading a paper and they say 200 katsu units, um, it's 200 mils of mercury. So that's a nice little handy hint. The width of the cuff is, there's a few factors here. Width of the cuff plays a massive effect on the pressure. So if you have a really thin cuff that you're using, the pressures tend to have to be higher because in a wider cuff, we're able to distribute the um, compressive force over a greater area. So we can use lower pressure. So that tends to be a more favorable type of cuff to use, something a little bit wider. Limb circumference is what probably our major um, factor which affects what kind of pressure we would use. So if you think about if you have you know, a heavy, super heavy weight li- weightlifter, big massive thighs, um, you would need 
at 50% of arterial occlusion. So we train it around 50 to 80% uh, as a number, and that's cuff width dependent. Um, and so if you think about if we have like a really big thigh, we, we need much more uh, arterial occlusion pressure than, say, a marathon runner who'd have skinny little legs. Um, so we need to take into consideration, that's probably a big thing, limb circumference and knowing what kind of cuff width. Now, when I calculate the pressures to train with, I think of this as any new stress. So before we start heading into some sort of German high-volume training in the gym, we would do lots of preparatory work. We would be building up in the first couple of months so we can handle some crazy volume. So similarly, when if I would calculate your pressure, and let's just say it comes out to 150 mils of mercury for your thighs, I'd say, well, the first time, Joel, we're going to train, we're actually going to bring it back to 130 mils of mercury. I'm going to take 20 mils off. And this is where this uh, warm-up protocol, we spoke about um, pass- use it passively. In the katsu world, it's called koatsu joatsu, J-O-A-T-S-U. I think that's how it's spelled. And they actually do like a preparatory warm-up cycle where um, let's just say 150, you'll start at 120, you'll inflate for 40 seconds, deflate for 20. Uh, and then go another 10 mils, you go 120, 130, 140, 150. And what you're doing is you're preparing your vasculature for your upcoming main set. Anyway, however saying that, so we're preparing your vasculature, especially for your thighs, and and especially when it's cold. You know, temperatures as well can change pressures. Um, Blood pressure is is another contributing factor, but our limb circumference is our our main one, Um, more from that practical um, viewpoint. And then so the first time I'm going to train you, rather than saying, right, well, I'm going to go 130 mils of mercury and I'm not going to make you hold it continuous pressure for the whole time. Um, so I'm actually going to inflate it and then you're going to do one, maybe two sets. If you're feeling like you're really struggling, I'm going to release the pressure, reinflate, finish set three or four, um, and then deflate in between your set. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to build up the total amount of time that you're holding it continuously because I want you to have a really great experience because, and also because the pressure's not, it's 50 to 80%. Um, it's, there's lots of factors which go into this. And although we calculate that 150 might be right for you, you the sensations that you're getting, 120 might be all that you can really handle. Um, and I know that BFR is going to have a really great effect for you. So it's like, well, if we go to 130 and the pressure is too restrictive, um, you're going to have a negative experience as well. So, um, but I'm still getting the same responses, you know, at, at 120. So, you know, you know, the skin color, the capillary refill time is good. You're having that fatiguing effect across the sets. You're having that feeling of the pump, um, the intracellular swelling. So, all these factors are all of a sudden going, "Hey, I'm, I'm ticking all the right boxes." And then by week. Um, you know, it could be week two, could be week three, depending on how you're feeling. We want to get up to hopefully around that 150 mils. And we want to be holding for, you know, they talk about on the lower body, 20 mil, uh, twenty minutes of continuous uh, total pressure time uh, or 15 minutes for the upper body. Um, you could release it and then reinflate more from that safety viewpoint. Um, but, that, you know, think about it's a brand new training stress. So how can we systematically in uh, get to the right point safely within three to four weeks. 
that sounds awesome, Chris. I, I know um, there's probably a million like protocols that we could get into, but I, I appreciate that overview. And um, yeah, it was, it was so great learning about this um, element of physiology today that uh, to me is just so important for that total well-rounded picture of uh, not only um, I would almost call it like like day where it's like super mechan- you know, mechanical load, super nervous system, but also the night or the recovery and the expand, you know, the physiology and everything that goes into that. Uh, it's really been great talking to you and I appreciate you uh, filling us in on a little bit about uh, blood flow restriction and what it can do. Yeah, my pleasure, Joel. Like it's, it's been great. And I think, you know, with this, it, it, for me, education is really important. Um, and just to demystify the whole world of, of BFR, I think is really important. And I think it's also important to keep your eye on the prize that it's, it's not going to replace everything. But if you have the athlete and you start to say, well, where are the elements where we could be in looking for small improvements in performance? Um, whether it is hormonal priming, where it is passive potentiation, whether it is better recovery, whether it is, you know, you have a hard gainer and we just want to be smarter with our training. It's, it's important to understand when it's a tool in the toolbox. Uh, and it's important to know when to put the tool in and when to keep the tool aside for another day. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely a tool that I have used and I definitely plan on using a lot more of. So I appreciate your time, Chris. Thank you. Fantastic, Joel. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening to the show. Just one last reminder, if you wanted to get in on that uh, BFR cuff giveaway, especially after hearing of all the benefits of the training method, and you want to get in on that giveaway, uh, which lasts until November 11th, you can sign up for a chance to win a free pair of cuffs at bit.ly slash freebfr. That'll take you to Simply Faster's page where you can sign up. We'll see you guys next week. If a training tool costs thousands of dollars, it's hard for a lot of individuals to rationalize uh, getting that piece of equipment as a regular part of their training. The nice thing about blood flow restriction training is that it is relatively inexpensive. This is a training method with solid benefits without having uh, some of the big price restrictions that other training technologies might bring forth. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about this today. Just a quick disclaimer and note before we get started. Research has shown that blood flow restriction training, when used properly, is a very low-risk venture. I think we know that every form of exercise has some risk to it, especially if we mismanage it. And so therefore, I recommend understanding that there are some contraindications to blood flow restriction training, uh, such as blood clots, for example. And it's very important to understand that those do exist before you get into the method. A lot of the app-based cuff systems will have a list for you, but I've included some extra information on BFR safety and protocols that I've posted in the show notes on justflysports.com to accompany this episode.